That's marking. He's enduringly strong. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's a lord of lords. That's my king. Good morning, church. As we gather together this morning, we are still in the book of Colossians. We're finishing up chapter 2 this morning, and if you're joining us for the first time in this series, uh, we are grateful that you're here today. We will be continuing on through the end of the book of Colossians, and uh, we're just grateful that you're here with us, that you have visited with us today. And church, I hope that you'll take every opportunity to be involved in the ministry that's going on here at Hepzibah. The things that you hear on this stage they're not just for you. They are things that we want you to be part of, to serve, to lead. And we ask and we pray that uh, you as church members would get involved, not just in the giving, but in the going aspects of the ministry that we have here at Hepzibah. So save those dates, get involved, and we are grateful uh, for all the faithfulness that we see over and over in this church body with carrying the Great Commission to our community into the nations. Today, as we open up in the book of Colossians, let me pray for us as we get going in chapter 2. Hopefully, you have turned there and we'll get moving here in just a moment. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we celebrate you today. Lord, that's why we've gathered. Lord, not for any other reason than to bring you honor and glory. Lord, to proclaim your majesty. Lord, to proclaim your power. And Lord, it's a power that we've seen lived out through us, Lord. We are grateful for the cross. We're grateful for the Holy Spirit that has filled us, Lord. We're grateful for the resurrection. We're grateful that we've been called and that we've been sent. And Father, I pray that today as we dive into your word, Lord, we need wisdom. Lord, you tell us that if we need wisdom, all that we have to do is ask of you in faith. And Lord, that you'll give it to us liberally. So Lord, we stand here today and Lord, we need you to speak, and we need you to move. We need your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and to transform us from the inside out. And Lord, I believe with my whole heart that is exactly what happens when the Word of God is opened, when the Word is preached. Lord, when we are here receptive, Lord, and asking you to speak, Lord, there's so much that you desire to say to us. So Lord, I pray that as we leave this place today, we would know that we've been in your presence, Lord, that we've heard your voice, because we've heard your word preached today. So, Father, give us what we need to not just be hearers today, but doers also. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 2. I want to remind you and kind of back up a minute to be sure that we understand where we've been and kind of where we're going in the book of Colossians. Uh, I told you last week, and I'm going to keep reiterating it, that the reality is you can't understand this book unless you remember that this book is showing us that Jesus Christ is supreme. He's supreme in our lives. He's supreme in this world. He is supreme over all that has been created. And the reality is this Jesus who is over all, he invites us into a personal relationship with him. I want us to remember this morning that the Colossian people, they were 
famous, as I've told you, for their vast array of temples, their superstitions. These were a people that literally, they had a temple for almost everything. And when the Christians came and the gospel was shared, there were many who began to want to know Jesus. There were many that gave their lives to Christ, that surrendered to the gospel. The gospel changed them, but yet there were teachings that were surrounding them because while we live in this world and while we may gather, we think about it today, we kind of, uh, you know, in a way, we get to run away from the world and come into four walls of a building. And many of us realize how insulated we are as a church. Back in that day, listen, there were so many voices that were speaking in to the folks that were trying to follow Jesus Christ. It became very confusing for them. Everybody around them, when they had a need, when they had something that they wanted to deal with spiritually, they had lived their whole lives instead of running to the God of Israel, the God of Scriptures, they'd run to their temples. They'd look towards their religious practices for whatever they felt they needed in that moment, whether it was better health, whether it was fertility, whether it was prosperity, whether it was protection. And like today, the more voices that we hear, the more voices that we listen to, Uh, things can get very confusing. For the people of this day, not only were they hearing what God had spoken to them through the apostles and through many teachers and leaders about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they were surrounded with a rich heritage, some of them coming out of Judaism, that they were trying to balance and understand what is their obligation to the law, if any, and how are they supposed to live as a believer and as a Jew, and what does it mean not only for the Jews but for the Gentiles? So they were asking questions because they were being told that, you know what, if you wanted to be a good believer in Jesus Christ, then you needed to follow rituals, and you needed to honor certain days, and you needed to eat and not eat certain foods, and it was causing much confusion, not just in the city of Colossae, but in many of the churches, even in Jerusalem, these questions were being asked. But in places like Colossae, on top of the Judaizers, on top of this understanding that you needed Jesus plus the law or Jesus plus the rituals, they had been told in these cities, in these places where there were so many temples and gods that were being worshipped, that it wasn't enough to even worship Jesus, but you needed to worship angels. That beyond the word of God, you needed a secret knowledge that could only come through visions. They kept adding to the gospel. It's Valentine's Day, and most of us, if we were raised and were dating in the 1980s and the 1990s, it's a lost thing on the generation today. Because on Valentine's Day, you know, that many years ago, 40 years ago, If you wanted to give your special someone a gift, how many of y'all ever gave a mixtape? See, some of the young ones don't even know what a mixtape is. Yeah, they know. That's exactly right. They know it today as a Spotify list. Listen, it used to not be easy to find and listen to music. You would buy a whole album or a cassette because you wanted one or two songs on that thing. And you didn't want to have to listen to the whole thing to get to the one song. 
So you know what you do? You would make a bootleg copy is what we called it. And you would take a song from this one, and you would take a song from that one, and you would hit the record button, and you would make a cassette tape. And if you wanted to really let somebody know that you loved them, man, you gave them that tape, and it had all those songs with all the feels, right? Or you could catch it on the radio. But see, you guys don't know. You younger ones don't know about having to wait for the things that you wanted. Everything today is right here, right? The church in Colossae, you know what? It was like a mixtape. They had just taken things from here and things from there and placed it together until they had this gospel that, let me tell you something, wasn't really a gospel at all. Here is a truth that I want us to start with this morning. That if you add to the gospel of Jesus Christ or you take away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you don't have the gospel at all. We have to grasp that. We have to understand the context of what we're going to get into this morning because he's going to tell us some things this morning. He's going to say, you know what, there are those around you. They want to judge you. They want to condemn you because you're not doing what they think you should do because they have man-made rules, because they have their own rituals, because they don't understand that the gospel has set us free, and they're going to try to judge you, and they're going to try to condemn you. He says, be careful, because there are those that are going to try to disqualify you. In judging you, they're going to tell you that you can't really know God unless you have Jesus plus. That you can't really be forgiven unless you have Jesus plus that you really aren't spiritual unless you have Jesus plus and they rob you of believing and thinking that you know what I can live and walk with Jesus Christ as I study and know and understand his word they try to control you by putting before you all the lists don't do this don't do that don't do this don't do that. And today we're going to get into some words that many of you may have heard. Some of them you may not have heard. But you need to understand the heresies. You need to understand the things that are happening in the life of this church because they're happening to us today. It wasn't only in Colossians. You look in places where he wrote to the church at Galatia. Look at what it says before we get into our text today. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6-8. through 8. Paul knew that even this other church in Asia Minor was struggling with similar, similar things. And these are the words that he gave to that church. He said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, capital H, meaning Jesus, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. You're deserting God, he's saying, for a different gospel, which really is not another only there are some of you who are, or there are some who are disturbing you, and they want to distort the gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have proclaimed to you, he is to be accursed. That's the seriousness of what we're dealing with today. In this text, is be careful that you haven't accepted a gospel that isn't a gospel at all. It's called syncretism. If you want to know what the mixtape of religion is that they were dealing with, it was just called syncretism. It, it was the gathering together of all these various ideas until you had this almost Frankenstein religion. 
that wasn't recognizable in the scriptures anymore. So here's what he said in the book of Colossians, beginning in verse 16. He says, therefore, no one, therefore, no one, I mean, it's emphatic here, is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and the ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Let's start this morning, number one, with don't let others condemn you. You see, ultimately, that's what it means when we sit in judgment of another person. We are making a judgment as to something that is right or wrong. And many times in the Scripture, when we think about the idea of judgment and we see the idea of judgment, it comes on the heels of, of condemnation. We understand that when someone judges us, especially when you use that term today, uh, now sometimes I would say culturally we misunderstand when the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. I think when we look at this this morning, when it says, do not let another judge you, we have to understand the context here. This does not mean that we don't have the ability or the responsibility to know and understand what is right or wrong and to help lead our brothers into righteousness and away from unrighteousness. This does not mean that we don't have an opportunity and a responsibility when we see people who are beginning to walk away from the faith that are living in sin that we don't have the responsibility anymore to go to our brother and to help them. And that even if necessary, that church discipline becomes an issue within the body of Christ in order to restore because we love someone. We're not talking about the fact that, that the world wants to say, you know what, you have no right to say whether something is right or wrong. That is not what we're dealing with here. If you want to live that life, good luck. Because that means that your children, every time you say to them, you know what, you need to honor me and obey me, you need to, then they can look at you and say, Mom, Judge not, lest you be judged. You see, we as adults, that's how we handle verses like this. We want to make it out as if there's no one who can say anything to us. And that is not what we're getting at here. There is a context to this scripture this morning. And he's saying to the believers at Colossae that there are those that are seeking to judge you. There are those that are seeking to condemn you for reasons that are not biblical. 
And he goes on and describes what the issues are in Colossae. This is probably one of the clearest scriptures to help us understand what exactly was happening there. It is not comprehensive. We don't understand every dynamic of what they were being taught and what was being said. We have glimpses and we have understandings maybe of where it was coming from and who was saying these things and the effect it was having on the church. But we can't understand it fully, but this is the best picture that we have in the book of Colossians as to what they were dealing with. He says, you don't need to let others condemn you. And he says, there is something within us that we are too often impressed with rules and regulations. Have you ever noticed that about Christians? And not just Christians, but people in general, that we are far too impressed with rules and with regulations If we're true about this text today, we're going to realize that, you know what, there are some things that are being dealt with in this text. And those things are things like legalism. Those things are things like ritualism. And you see, legalism and ritualism, they have a way of creeping into the body of believers because there is something within us that we want to make up our own religion, don't we? Even when God gives us things that he says, this is who you're to be, this is what you're to do, we love to not just accept it at face value, but we like to add to it, don't we? Or we like to muddle it and subtract things away from it, but we have this constant thing within us that we want to believe that somehow we can work our way to God. When we try to think about this issue that they're dealing with in these opening texts, he's talking about legalism. He's talking about ritualism. Legalism, again, isn't saying that something is right or something is wrong or that God hasn't somehow given us expectations on the way that he wants us to live. Folks, we know that God has done that, but where legalism becomes poison, where legalism becomes deadly, is when we think that God has given us a set of rules, and by obeying those rules, somehow we will be saved. It's the thinking that, you know what, somehow, if I do A, B, C, and D, God owes me salvation. That I will gain favor from God by doing these things. Folks, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very nature of grace is that God extended forgiveness and mercy to us even in those moments that we did not deserve it, that we had not merited it. And you see, there are many. That is the very thing that is keeping them from coming to Christ. Understanding the gospel of Jesus is they say that, you know what, before I can come to Jesus, i got to get my life straight. I've got to start doing this, and I've got to start doing that. And listen, that is going to send them to hell because they have no chance of changing. The law cannot save a man. The law can only condemn a man. And we need Jesus. We need his death. We need his burial. We need his resurrection. We need his atonement. We need his sacrifice. Legalism is simply the human effort to fulfill man-made or God-given laws as a basis for salvation or spiritual standing before God. And the way that they put it in this text in the beginning, you see where he says, listen, there are those that are trying to judge you in regard to food, in regard 
to drink. Really what he's getting at here are these Judaizers that would have looked at the Christians and would have looked at those who were Jews and even those who were not Jews and said that if you're going to follow God, then you've got to go back to the Old Testament law and you've got to obey it. And you can eat this and drink this, but you can't eat this and you can't drink this. And you've got to remember that Paul had already declared and you've got to remember that God had already declared that all things are clean, didn't he? You see, we don't live under the Old Testament dietary laws anymore, do we? We don't live under the old sacrificial system anymore where animals have to be sacrificed so that we can have a covering until one day a better sacrifice comes. Listen, the better sacrifice has come. And he said that it was finished. And if you wonder how we got to this point and why he's talking about it now, go back into the beginning of chapter 2 or or the middle of chapter 2. And he says, therefore, because a few moments ago, he said, you are complete in Christ. And nothing else, not the law. It didn't save you. Not rituals. In fact, where legalism ends up taking us and where ritualism, really where everything we're going to talk about today ends up taking us, is the focus becomes not God in salvation, but where does it turn to? It turns to ourselves. And when we start talking about our our relationship with God, it no longer is Him being praised and Him being magnified, but it's us looking at ourselves and saying, look at what I've been able to accomplish. Look at the things that I've been able to do. If we become so self-righteous, because that's where legalism is going to take us. Not a righteousness where I'm looking to Jesus and saying, I need you to take my sin and give me your righteousness because I have none. But it's establishing some system where we think, you know what? I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and I'm going to be better than them, and God's going to see it, and God's going to honor me. And folks, let me tell you something. That is a disastrous way to live. Our desire to live righteously has to come not from the outward things, but an inward transformation that only Jesus can give us that is rooted in love and thankfulness. We need Christ to change us. And in the church, there have always been rules spoken and unspoken. Anybody remember even a generation ago, two generations ago? Listen, if you'd have played skip bow, you'd have been looked at like... You were a complete heathen. Because you never played what? You never played cards. You didn't dance. You didn't chew. You didn't date women who didn't. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) We have our own set of rules, don't we? And those rules are meant to puff us up. Those rules are meant to make people look at us and want to see a godliness in us. They're comparisons that we use to measure our own spirituality. And listen, sometimes it's in something as simple as when we come up, you know, I always notice on the Sundays, and many of you have as well, that you know what, there are moments where some people, their posture in prayer is on their knees. There are weeks in here where we know we'll commission people off 
And there are some that, you know, we'll say, hey, you know what, if you'd like to come lay a hand on these people as we commission them, come and, and, and do that. We want to give you that opportunity. You know how easy it would be to look at the people that don't come forward and, and say to yourself, well, they're just not as spiritual, are they? As if walking forward and putting a hand on someone is somehow going to be more spiritual than someone who's sitting back in that seat and is still going to faithfully lift them up and faithfully pray for them the entire week. You see how we start to just set in place all these rituals and all these things that in some ways we measure our spirituality and has nothing to do with our spirituality. Folks, legalism is dangerous. Ritualism is dangerous because it's highly contagious. It has the ability to take a vibrant faith and make it dull and lifeless. We start to do things. You know why? Because we have to. Our motivation shifts from love and thankfulness and a desire to honor God to, you know what, my whole spirituality is wrapped up in this, and so I'm going to do it because I what? Because I have to. Legalism produces large quantities of self-righteousness, judgment of others, condemnation. It makes us narrow. It makes us divisive. The reality is it puts so much focus on us that it makes it hard for people to see Jesus. Legalism is a big deal because it's deadly. Legalism is a big deal because it makes us prideful. And it puffs us up. people who were legitimately struggling in areas of their life to honor God, it brings them to a point of despair because they can't figure out why they can't get their life together like you have your life together and no one's pointing them to the only way they can get their life together, which is the power of Jesus in us. And we're looking at them as if to say, do better, try harder. It may look impressive, but it's not effective. I love the way he puts it here. He says, be careful to choose the substance rather than the shadow. Because he goes on in these verses, and when you look at the way he writes it and what he says, he says very plainly in a way that, that hopefully we can grasp clearly this morning, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus is wanting us to know that there's nothing wrong with the law. The law was given and it had a purpose, didn't it? He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. What did he come to do? He fulfilled the law. He, he took the death that the law was bringing to us and he gave his life a ransom for many and he bought our salvation through the shedding of his own blood. He didn't ignore the law. He fulfilled the law. But what he wants us 
to grasp and what he wants us to understand is that all those things that were in the Old Testament scriptures, especially about the temple, about the sacrifices, about the dietary laws, they served a purpose and they were pointing to something greater. That's what it boils down to. Imagine if we were traveling together and every time we got to an area or a sign that said rest area one mile, we all got out and did whatever we're going to do at the rest area at that sign as if that was the rest area. Be a little chaotic, wouldn't it? Be a little strange driving down interstate, wouldn't it? Because that is simply a sign, isn't it? That's not the rest area. That is a sign that what? That takes you to and points you to the rest area. Imagine if you were someone and you have a, a husband or a spouse that serves in the military. And while they're away, I guarantee you those people, they have a picture probably that they hold very close to them. And while that person is gone serving their country, they look at that picture over and over and over. Could you imagine if when the person got home, they completely ignored them and just focused on the picture and not the actual person? You see, all the things that we were given in those Old Testament scriptures concerning the dietary laws and the sacrificial system, Jesus is basically saying they were just the shadow. The shadow is nothing. The shadow just says that there's something else that is real and that is greater. And he says that when we get stuck in legalism, we are focused more on the shadow than the substance of Jesus Christ. The shadows simply point to the reality that there is a substance. Folks, sometimes the reason people don't adjust well spiritually is because as people we hate change, don't we? Well, let's just be honest. Nobody likes change. We say, well, it's older people that don't like change. No, it's young people. It's middle-aged people. It's just people in general, and sometimes, I mean, imagine if you were a Jew and all your life you'd been told, this is what you have to do, this is what you have to celebrate. You have these diets, you have these feasts, right? It says that every week you celebrated the Sabbath, and every month, every single solitary month of your life, there were going to be these moments where not only did you celebrate the Sabbath, but you also celebrated these new moon festivals, and then every year you were going to go and celebrate larger festivals like Pentecost. And now suddenly somebody comes along and says, those are but a, a shadow. You can see why people resist the change because they're just used to it. But folks, let me tell you something. It matters. Jesus is saying that something far greater has come, something that can truly save, something that truly matters. It's not that we ignore the shadows. They have a purpose. When we think about the Passover, it ought to make us want to celebrate more Jesus and what he's done. We look at what happened in the Exodus and we recognize that, you know what? Jesus Christ saw us in our sin the Lamb of God was sent. The blood was shed so that we didn't have to die, right? And God delivered His people through the blood of the Lamb. We have every reason to look back and to celebrate, but understand now the New Testament says Jesus is the Passover Lamb. And we're not bound the same way to celebrate those 
things the way they did in the Old Testament scriptures. We celebrate and we worship Jesus. I don't know about you, I'm glad that we're not still using typewriters, aren't you? I kind of like HD television, don't you? Aren't you glad we're not watching analog anymore? Aren't you glad that Mr. Ford thought of building a car so we didn't all have to ride in here on horses today? He says, don't despise the shadow, but you need to look at it differently in the light of Christ and of the New Testament. And he secondly goes on and says, don't let them disqualify you. He says, not only should they not act as your judge, he says, let no one in verse 18 keep defrauding you of the prize. That means that there are people in your life that are going to try to act as an umpire for you, judging what is right or what is wrong. And if you remember what a judge does many times in the game, a judge has the ability or an umpire to disqualify you. If they think that something you've done doesn't measure up to the rules and the regulations that have been set, then they disqualify you, right? They tell you, you're done. You're finished. You can't get the prize. The prize is going to go to another. And he says, listen, you need to stop letting people do that to you. And he says, you know, when you think about the question, well, then how are they doing that? He says that, listen, as believers, we're too often impressed with spiritual elitism. By spiritual elitism, I mean that there's something within us that is impressed with people who seem to know more than anybody else. It actually can frustrate the life of a new believer when they realize that, you know what, there's still a ton to learn. It hinders people sometimes because sometimes we live in an elitism within the church, special knowledge, right? Have you ever noticed that nobody ever begs the preacher to preach a sermon that's convicting. You know what they want to have me preach about? Well, it's not even the feel-good stuff. You know what my number one request is? Over and over and over. I get so sick of hearing it. You know what it is? Revelation. You know what they want me to do? They want me to go in and unpack all the little secrets. They want me to go in there and, and rather than applying the text in the way that we sh should live our lives, you know what they're really hoping? Is that I'm going to go in there and I'm going to tell them who the Antichrist is. And what nations are the ten nations. And they want me to go in and start making guesses at the end times and how it relates to today. And you know what we don't want? We don't want a sermon that steps on our toes. But we crave those things. And, and these guys, you know what they're saying? They're saying, if you're really spiritual, look what the text says. He says, then you'll worship angels. And if you don't have this secret life where you interact with the gods and with the angels and with everything else, then you know what? You're not spiritual enough. It's almost like you're not qualified to teach. You're not qualified to do this or to do that or to even be part of us because you don't have all this knowledge, all this special revelation. And imagine how discouraging it is for those people who just want to know God's Word, but everybody keeps telling them, no, it's not God's Word, but it's all these other things. There's a danger to syncretism, which is the joining together of all these thoughts and ideas from all religions and all backgrounds trying to make it gel with Christianity and, and mysticism. We love a mystery. 
we love, there are people that, you know, they will look at the Bible as if it's some kind of numerological code that has to be thought through and figured out a riddle rather than a revelation. But folks, let me remind you of this. No one can disqualify you when Christ has said you're qualified. Amen. I mean, that's the truth. If you've received the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are growing in your faith at the first day, at the first moment, no one can disqualify you because Christ says in me, you've been qualified. You see, this mysticism and these thoughts of, you know, I'm deeper and I'm better and I'm smarter and I'm more religious and I have a deeper awareness of all these things. Folks, what that brings about is false humility and elevated self. It becomes spiritual arrogance for no reason at all. Again, I would ask you, who is being exalted in this kind of teaching? Not Jesus. We haven't even mentioned Jesus. We mentioned angels, right? As if Jesus is lower than the angels. As if we're lower than the angels. In Christ, guess what? Through all this secret knowledge, this Gnosticism that was being passed that we've talked about in past weeks, you see, we find that again, our teaching and our knowledge in us and me and my is what's being exalted rather than Christ and His work. So I want you to be careful this morning to choose holding fast to Jesus rather than man centered experiences. I want you to realize people in all religions, they have experiences, but it doesn't mean every experience is from God, right? Every false religion out there has an experience, whether it's Mormonism with Joseph Smith being spoken to by an angel and giving tablets in which he's supposed to write another Bible. Whatever false religion is out there, we don't have time to get into all the minutiae of those things. But folks, people are constantly claiming experiences. But when we put them up against the Word of God, they don't check out. And don't be quick to jump on board with those things. Here's what I want you to realize. That in our life, Jesus Christ is the prize. Some people would tell you knowledge is the prize. Ecstatic utterances, speaking in tongues, that that's the prize. Folks, make no mistake. They're trying to tell you that if you don't have those things, they want to defraud you of the prize that Christ has given you, and the prize is Jesus Christ himself. And you start substituting and searching for other things when you have all that you need in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And what you've been called to do First and foremost is to abide in Him. Remain in Him. It's what He simply means when He speaks these verses where He says to all of us, hold fast to the head. That's Jesus Christ from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. 
If you want to grow spiritually, grow in your walk with Christ, grow in your knowledge of the Scripture, and look at this Scripture as a revelation, not a riddle, a book to where we gain an understanding of a relationship with the one who saved us, this one who transforms us. And never forget that the greatest prize, the greatest goal of a believer's life is not religion, it's a relationship with Jesus. An intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. Don't let anybody get your focus off of Jesus to the point that you choose experience over Christ. Because if we do that, we're going to start coming to church. And this is happens with legalism and with regula regulations as well that we put on ourselves, that we start coming to church and we think that we're worshiping God and listening to His Word, but we're a million miles away while we do it. Because the thought of a personal relationship with Jesus bores us. It doesn't satisfy us. So we look for an experience. That's why people ask the question all the time, what if we ripped down the lights? What if we got rid of the bands? What if we simplified everything that we do so that we come in this room and there is no way for you to focus on anything other than him? How many of you would be satisfied or how many of you would go, well, this just isn't fun anymore? Is there anything wrong with lights? No. Is there anything wrong with bands? No. But if you walk in and out of here in a week and all you've experienced is music or a message that you liked or some new friendships and you've missed the point of why we were here in the first place and that is Jesus. Lastly, don't let others control you. Don't let others control you. He, he doesn't have a direct let no one, but you'll see it here as we read through it. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, and that is since there in verse 20, it's an acknowledgement that we have died as believers. We died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Then why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? He's saying, why are you letting others control you? I want you to remember what the Apostle Paul said. I want you to remember what Jesus would say. Listen, we have been set free, haven't we? It's for freedom that we've been set free. He didn't free us so we would become slaves again to the law, did he? He didn't set us free and say that all things are clean so that we would then turn around and live under the yoke and the burden of all these things all over again. He doesn't want us to fall into the trap like they did in the Old Testament where they would come to worship and they would go to the temple and they would kill those animals, but it meant nothing to them. It was just ritualism. It was just legalism. It was just what they had to do. It's what they'd done all their life. It was devoid of any real relationship. And in essence, in Isaiah 1, it's like God is telling the angels, shut the door, I'm sick of looking at it. It means nothing to them. And he says we get caught up 
Because we're too often impressed with dramatic acts of self-denial. Not only spiritual elitism, not only rules and regulations many times impress us, but dramatic acts of self-denial for some reason tends to impress us. The danger here is asceticism. That word asceticism that you see on the screen, it's the practice of strict self-denial as a measure of personal and spiritual discipline. What it means is I'm going to be more known for what I don't do rather than what I do. (laughs) It's the idea that asceticism is I'm going to withhold from myself all the things of this life that even God has said are good things because I'm trying to control my body. It's what monks did all those years, all those millennia, where they would go out and they would try to get away from the world and they would go and lock themselves in deserts and lock themselves in high mountain places and they would be totally away from the world. And as they shut and locked the door, they would sit there and it didn't take them long to realize that the problem isn't out in the world as much as it's where? It's inside of us. And so the lusts they had in the world are the same lusts they carried with them into the monastery. Because it is a what issue? It's a hard issue. It's an inside issue. An inside-out issue that Jesus is trying to take care of. And we think it's an outside issue. So we think if I have these rules and I do these things and I separate myself in this way, that is going to take care of the issue. And we never seek a personal relationship with Jesus that is meaningful. And we can't figure out why we're so frustrated. Asceticism, this strict denial. All these things, you can see how they they work together. And we looked at them individually, but you can see how they're all interwoven. It's things like, you know, we just make rules that are hard and fast, and and we don't even let God have room to work and to move. You ever said something like, I'll never watch a rated R movie? You see, that's just a rule that's easy to put on ourselves without understanding why the rule is there in the first place. Are there reasons why you should not watch a rated R movie? Yes. But should you so be so real, uh, religious and so, you know, whatever, trying to, to show you, your self-righteousness to the world by I would never, what do you do when the passion of the Christ comes along? <laughs> Guess what the rating is on the passion of the Christ? Yeah, you know Why? Because it's, his death was violent. And we set up these rules and now we're stuck because we've told everybody, look how spiritual I am. I would never, I will never go to a rated R movie rather than trying to get to the heart of why we would say something like that. There's a difference between a Fifty Shades of Grey and the passion, I would hope, right? Do you think that spiritually we can make a decision between those two things? Do we need the rules to do that? Or do we need a personal relationship with Jesus where the Spirit of God convicts us, where we know what His Word says and we know the difference between those things and we can walk in freedom without having to pile 50 million rules on ourselves? Does that make sense? makes sense in my head. Because we have to be careful to choose freedom over slavery. 
If we're not careful, we will enslave ourselves again to the law, to ritualism, to thinking that we're more spiritual because we're smarter and we know the Bible better or we have some secret knowledge. Folks, what he's getting at at the end of the day is what he finishes with in verse 23. says, these matters, they for sure have the appearance of wisdom. It looks good, doesn't it? It looks spiritual, doesn't it? Legalism and mysticism and asceticism. That You know what? I'm going to just, just separate myself and I'm going to just basically remove myself and abase myself so that I can be more spiritual. And what he's saying is, you've forgotten one simple fact. That it's self-made religion and this self-abasement and this severe treatment of your body, it's of no value. Listen to that. It is of no value against fleshly indulgence. As the musicians come this morning, I'm going to blow your mind this morning. How many of y'all love a graham cracker? I love a graham cracker. I love it with peanut butter and jelly on it. I love it with a marshmallow and chocolate on it. I like it in a clear cake. I can't hardly think of a way I don't like a graham cracker. This is how foolish we are in our thinking. You know where a graham cracker came from? So you think Nabisco came up with that. And they have made them much better. Back in the day when they first made them, they didn't have much taste to them. It was a lot like eating communion wafers. Plasticky, right? Cardboard-like. And they were actually, this is, I'm telling you, it's gonna blow, you're not going to believe me, and all y'all going to go home and you're going to look this up, because you ain't going to believe me. Because I didn't believe it the first time I heard it. It was a pastor that made graham crackers. These sweet little perforated crackers, they came into existence by the hands of an evangelical minister whose name was Sylvester Graham. You know what his goal was in making those? He came to the belief somehow in his head that the reason people and culture were so sexually driven, why all our lusts run rampant and all these things are because of something that we put into our body. He thought because of the fats. He thought because of the different chemicals. Whatever else that he thought goes into our body, this minister actually made graham crackers because he thought if you'll eat these graham crackers, they're tasteless. They probably don't have any nutritional value. They certainly don't have any value in, in taste the way they made them back then. He honestly believed that these, if you eat them, they will curb your sexual desires and lusts. Let that sink in next time you eat a graham cracker. I mean, I want you to think about the lunacy of that for a second. Graham crackers as a form of birth control. Graham's aim was not to bring the world a campfire treat, but to get rid of our carnal urges and evils in general. That's a lofty aim for man and certainly for a small cookie. But 
do you, do you see how twisted we can get? When what we need is to learn to walk with Jesus, to hold fast again to the head. The one and the only one who can help us to grow and to mature and to become all that we are supposed to be. So where are you in your relationship with Jesus this morning? I didn't ask you where are you in your tithing record? Where are you in your religious activity? I'm not asking you where are you in your attendance. I'm not asking you where are you in all your biblical knowledge. Can you answer every theological question that we throw at you about the end times and the tribulations and the Antichrist? I'm asking where are you in your relationship with Jesus? Father, we just thank you that today we get to dive in. This is a hard text. But Lord, if we would just step back from it, we would realize how many times we fall victim to trying to do better, try harder, rather than abiding in the vine. We work more out of I have to than I want to. And I'd love to. Lord, we've tried to replace your power with our own will and our own strength and our own desires. And more and more, we try to find favor in everything other than the cross. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would forgive me this morning. Forgive all of us this morning for those moments in our lives when we take our eyes off of you and we put them squarely back on ourselves again. As if we're enough. As if we can. Lord, to do that is to rob the gospel of its power. Lord Jesus, may you be all that is enough today. And if someone is here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, my prayer is that they would come to Christ today, that they would cry out to you. They've tried religion. They've tried to follow rules. They've tried to be different. They've tried all of these things. And what they have not done is run to a Savior who will forgive them if they will repent. If they will believe that he died on a cross for their sins and took their punishment for the crimes and the sins the thoughts, the words, the actions that they have committed throughout their whole life against God. That, Lord Jesus, you came and you paid the price by dying in our place and you were buried and you rose again victorious and you can conquer sin in us. Lord, it's the only way it's going to happen. And, Father, then we can surrender to you. And, Lord, the, the voices really die down when we understand that I serve one. I don't have to let others condemn me or judge me or I don't have to let others disqualify me or control me. Lord, there's only one, one voice that I long to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So Lord, let us learn how to listen to your voice today. And as we pray today, help us to pray through what you've spoken to us. Where are we struggling in this? What things have we placed in our life to try to curb our desires, our lusts, our thoughts with silly things? They're as silly as graham crackers. Lord, we've got to get to the deeper issue of I want everything in my life to flow out of love for you. Thankfulness for you and what you've done for me. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. That's marching. He's enduringly strong. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Yeah.